How's it going, everybody? This is the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. I believe we are on episode number 26. And uh, today I have Joe Jeffrey on. Joe Jeffrey is a PED educator and also a very successful coach. Uh, Joe, I first, I guess, wanted to open with um, you helped me uh, prior to this le- recent contest prep. And um, I just wanted to thank you uh, because um, the advice that you provided to me uh, really provided some reassurance across the contest prep and probably ended up making my contest prep uh, very successful for for a self-coached one. Uh, I think one, I just, I, I listened to what you said and, and I and I fall back on it when I was like, maybe not as sure. And then I also uh, used your physique collective as a resource when I wasn't sure. Um, you're really, really, uh, you answer questions really fast on there. And uh, you do the the Q&A, which is just an amazing resource uh, because, you know, you ask, you, you, anybody can ask a question and they're not met with like uh, any discourse or like negativity. It's all just positive feedback between you and your coaches. So yeah, I just wanted to thank you for provide, providing that service and, and, and helping me out with that uh, first and foremost. Holy shit, man. That was the best intro of any podcast I've ever had. Absolutely <laughs> blowing my head up before we've even started. No, I'm, I'm really glad specifically that my... Um, my guidance was useful for your prep, but especially with what you've said about Physique Collective, that's a, a huge passion project of mine. Essentially, when I was like, quote unquote, done with my coaching, you know, like I'm full with clients. I've got a long waiting list. I'm at every show of the season already. I've got clients can be in everywhere. It's like, this is done. Now I want to, I remember in one of our first sort of board meetings with Physique Collective with the, the marketing guys that we've taken on and things like that. Um, they'd ask what like the, the goal audience for physically collective would be. And I said, me 10 years ago, because I remember, well, it's more than 10 years ago now, I'd be like 12 years ago that I first got into this world and I started trying to look for PED advice and was just kind of met with uh, forum conjecture and i was uncomfortable with that it took a long time a lot of money investing in mentorships and so and so over the years that ultimately led to me wanting to create the hub for good evidence-based advice from people that are also actually in the industry and um like to train hard and also just meatheads at heart but have an evidence-based resource that's very affordable, you know, $6.99 a month. I'm not sure what that is in dollars. I'm pretty sure it's about the same with the current exchange rate. But, you know, we've literally got thousands of posts in my Q&A thread alone. And I'm very careful that every response is met, referenced properly. Um, we've got hundreds of hours of videos on there. Across the whole forum, we have to have 10,000 responses, you know, for... Yeah. Only six nine a month. I, I really wanted to create something that I think we have now. So that was golden for me, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, when someone makes a great product, they I have to uh, shout it out. I mean, as a coach, it's really cool having, like you mentioned, uh, you know, we didn't have those resources, and now um, I can literally go on my computer if I'm not sure about something. I can go to any of my PDF books, or I can go to the Physique Collective. I can search something. And see if it comes up, like it's a problem I'm having with a client or something I'm unsure of. And then if it doesn't come up, I can just simply ask the question. Like, it's insane. Like, uh, uh, the the ability for me to have access to this information. Um, I, I know you've mentioned before that, like, there, the downside is that with all of the information available, it, it's it's kind of difficult to sort through what is, what is um, you know, reliable information, what is good information. Um, but once you do find these resources, I mean, I mean like, like you mentioned, uh, how many um, PED educators are meeting people with references when they ask a question? It's very, very few. Um, and I think that we could all do a better job, um, especially in the PED realm where there's a lot more risk involved to use some of the uh, evidence to instruct um, the way we do things, I guess. Is, is, and that's a, a huge reason why I am very um, invested in, in Physique Collective and things like that and other uh, evidence-based educators as well. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I, I really do appreciate that. I, th- I think the, the the evidence-based world has slowly and progressively built into PED practices now. It felt like it took a little bit of time to get there from the training world. I, st- I still think that natural educators are beating us left, right and centre on the quality of their content and evidence-based data, but it, it is certainly catching up now and I'm glad to be a part of that movement 
Yeah, most definitely. Um, and, and, and to get more into your specific practices, I've seen some of your clients. Uh, it, it seems like you've had an incredible competitive season. So mm-hmm. I think a really big part of, of getting more people invested, especially on the enhanced side, is, is obviously through results. And I think that, that your results kind of speak for themselves in that regard. Uh, could you uh, talk a little bit about, about how this competitive season has gone? I mean, I haven't, fo- I've, I've followed you more recently, but like, how is this competitive season compared to others? And, and um, just kind of some of the things that you were able to accomplish this competitive season. Yeah, I would say my last three competitive seasons as a coach have positioned me to, without sounding too arrogant, be amongst the kind of upper tier of coaches, especially in the UK. I would say there's kind of five guys that really, quote unquote, rule the roost with client results. But I feel like it was particularly important for me to be able to showcase almost a backing of the things that I'm saying. And we know the way that bodybuilder types will respond to things, you know, like, great, if you want to be a bookworm and, you know, telling me to only use X dose of drug, where, you know, these guys don't really do this. But when I can say, look, I've got clients competing in the Arnold Classic, we're looking at Olympia qualifications and, you know, multiple pro cars over multiple federations we've taken this season and in the past, um, including something that I just shared today where my wife become the world bikini champion of the federation so it's like i'm not just saying these things like my clients actually do these things and luckily i've got a lot of my clients on the physique forum that log their progress they can say yeah actually this is what we did and and we do get these um substantial results and at the same time i feel like we have to bridge the gap with reality because you know i like to work in a risk reduction format as much as possible but unfortunately, there is risk in some cases, high risk that you have to take. And I think being honest about that at the same time is important not to paint a picture that this risk reduction format that we use would eradicate risk because that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, more recently, there's been some, um, what's the kind of word I'm looking for? Maybe kickback against some of the work that we've done. I think a little bit of a miscommunication where somebody had put some content out saying there's no safe way to use PEDs and these people should be saying this. And I, I would just like to make it really clear that under no circumstances would I ever use the word safe with any PED use. Um, that we're talking about specifically outside the realms of hormone replacement therapy practices or something like this certainly is, is you know, that's an evidence-based discussion to have. We've got very good, high-quality, long-term data to support that hormone replacement therapy models do that but we're talking about competitive bodybuilding and and the pro ranks they have to do some things that are very high risk i'd much rather work within the discussions of if we can reduce that risk it's probably a good idea and we absolutely can in most cases and i've managed to reduce risk in many pro competitors and their placings haven't gone down in fact quite the opposite we've had the best placings for all of our athletes they've ever had this year yeah yeah do you think there's any any truth to the 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 fact or or not the fact this the statement that um a healthier body tends to function better uh perform better did you say that again for me sorry you just cut out is there any truth to the statement a healthier body uh performs better and, most and with that yeah most definitely i mean we get to a discussion there of the inverted u response to drug dosing where quite clearly more does more we can reference the basin studies that famous basin study on testosterone you know the dose response across multiple doses up to 600 milligrams probably the most referenced study in all the PED discussions which is very useful up to the point of discussion about 600 milligrams and you know regional level competitors are using three times that unfortunately um and, and there was a dose response scene where more does more but we can't sort of collaterally extend that out to the fact that that would happen indefinitely it certainly doesn't and in my experiences you know you're breaching the the two to three gram a week marker you're probably edging on where you're going to tip over that inflection point of that inverted u and then oxidative stress and inflammation and just general poor negative feedback inhibitory systems like sleep disturbances gi disturbances 
these are going to occur and your results will most definitely waver. I think there's a much greater discussion for that in prep, especially at the latter end where fatigue management is absolutely imperative. And we've all seen the overly inflamed, I hate to use an esoteric term, but like overly stressed competitor on stage where, you know, they've got the red skin and they just can't shift that fluid and it all just looks stringy. Um, when a competitor is healthier, the ability to load carbohydrates is much easier. The extracellular fluid drop-off is much easier. The diuresis process just runs much smoother. So most definitely in every circumstance, there's a there's a balancing act though. Again, I don't want to paint a false image here and say, yeah. well, you'll be healthier on 300 milligrams a week. So let's run that to get you to 300 pounds in the off season. It's like, no, you probably, if you're a pro competitor, yeah, you should probably discover what total net androgen load you start to incur deleterious health consequence and not breach that. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, when I think about it, I think that, you know, from that study and, and, and from experience, there's probably somewhat of a linear relationship with, with growth. And, and then that drops off to some degree um, with, with um, you know, your actual total PED load. Right. But um, there's also, uh, I think a time component, like there's so much tissue you can put on a certain time without, um, driving a ton of fatigue, a ton of inflammation. And, and I think there's a lot of pushback with that. Like, I think when we're talking these more evidence-based practices and we're extrapolating from maybe like the evidence-based training protocols and, and talking about fatigue management, I think that's something that can also be applied to your androgen load or to your total PED load, right? Especially in a contest prep uh, setting, like you can drive fatigue with some of these uh, compounds. Like you take, you know, too much euhembine or clenbuterol, simply mm -hmm. just the actual psychological side effects and then the physical side effects of getting to a certain dosage or, or even a certain androgen load can also drive fatigue. Um, is there any truth to all of the, the stuff I just kind of threw out? Most definitely. I, I agree with you. Let, let's, let's draw a comparison to training and I'll use an individual that, you know, take somebody very intelligent in the training world, like Dr. Mike. Um, you see two things that he will talk about a lot will be periodization and specificity. Um, these are things that should also be mapped into your PED programming. It needs to be periodized and it has to be a high degree of specificity. And you use the example of contest prep. So let's use the off season as a, as a counter example of that. We know that protein accretion is not acute in nature. It's not one training session. It's not one mesocycle. It's going to be multiple macro cycles. So if we're going to use these drugs, then much like you're training the, drug use should always reflect the need of the current scenario so let's say week one of your mesocycle you might only need 10 sets on a body bar maybe by the end you might need 20 similar to your total androgen load at the beginning of your macro cycle you might require 300 milligrams a week which achieve the desired protein cream that you're looking for by the end you might require 1000 or more it has to be periodized properly and there will come a point just like in training that there will need to be some resensitization please nobody listening get me for desensitization at the androgen receptor that's not what i'm claiming uh, i i know that down regulation doesn't seem to occur desensitization is different to down regulation there's we don't really have good compelling evidence of if or, or when that happens yet but just talking from an adaptive resistance point of view um drug use always reflecting the need just like you were you will require maintenance volume at times you will require a period of maintenance calories you will require a period of time of maintenance drugs also you can't accumulate linearly forever that fatigue metric that you mentioned there it will become an inhibitory factor and you will need to come down at the same time i don't think that the traditional cycling method or, or even extrapolating out to the more traditional blast and cruise method 12 weeks on six week cruise or, or whatever it may be I'm not a fan of that either because it doesn't necessarily reflect the needs of the individual i'd much rather see uh, uh, ped accumulation occur on a needs basis over a whole macro cycle for yeah. example which could be could be 40 weeks in some cases yeah yeah no i and i can i, I can attest to that um, I recently started employing these, these practices. Well, not recently, the last off season or two, and the amount of time I could handle the androgen load, the amount of time I could stay on and continue to progress by not starting at peak dosages and just going by needs, um, mm. was much greater. I was able to, to, you know, on that talking on that fatigue component, 
um, my blood work was still reflecting decent um, towards the end of these when I'm reaching peak dosages. I mm-hmm. think that if you were to come in at blast, and, and I've had this experience in the past, you come in at your top level dosages and try to ride that out. There's just a point where you just can no longer do that from a side effect perspective, from a health perspective, right? Or obviously you're taking a lot, a lot greater risk for less of, uh, um, you know, um, uh, uh, less growth trade-off, I guess. Um, so yeah. yeah, I can, I can definitely see that, uh, personally, I think I did a 24 week one and I had blood work almost as good at the end as I did at the beginning, which was like insane to me. Um, it's a great point using... with, with the drugs we have, sorry, I interrupted you there. No, 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 absolutely. Um, Go ahead. With the drugs that we have available to us today and the knowledge that we have on stack design and the drugs deployment and predictable outcomes in research done with what happens at what dose over what duration and what kind of demographic, there's no real reason for us to ever have to skew blood work. And this was a tenant that I put out there a long time ago, and I've managed to do it, um, is you should be able to linearly progress without ever skewing your blood work, even at the pro level, because of the, um, the improvements over time that we've had in the drug development world, outside of the bodybuilding world, you know, suitably for us, these drugs have maintained their animalism and much of the negative consequence of androgenicity has been removed. We have some pretty well-refined molecules available to us today. I'm mostly namely talking about things like primobolin or masteron or trembolone in some cases. People have gone trembolone. We could talk about that <laughs> later on, maybe. Um, so, you know, the, the deployment of these drugs and their reflective dosages and the accumulative dosage practice, like you've spoken about there, we don't really ever have to push it to a point where blood work should skew even at high total net androgen lows. Yeah. I think you probably uh, uh, turned a lot of heads with that one. I think that's a, a something that, that people expect and, and think is a, a normal thing. Uh, and as a part of the process, could you maybe touch on, I think this is a good transition is, is um, what, like, how do I word this? we have a lot of compounds that we could potentially use, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why would we choose something like Primabolin or Mastron? I think there's a lot of people out there saying like, well, why don't I use like, um, you know, uh, a Nandrolone or, or, uh, an Equipoise or some Anadrol? Like, why am I, why, you know, these things tend to put on muscle better. Uh, what, what would be your counter to something like that? And why would we use something like a Primabolin or a Mastron? Okay, cool. So let, let's let's ride with that claim. Uh, these things tend to put on muscle better if we first examine the evidence that we've got available to us. Um, we tend to come back to the Hirschberger assays. And for anybody that doesn't know, the Hirschberger assay was basically an assay used. I've got a really long form article on Physique Collective if anybody wants to know the details, but I'll make it quite brief. So essentially, you take a rodent and you take the Levetorani, which is like the a smooth muscle in the anus of a rat um, and apply a molecule to it, like a testosterone or a nandrolone or a primobona, like you said, and you can measure the change in weight of the levatorani. And this is how we term anabolism in these molecules, the relative weight change of this muscle. There's a couple of problems here. One, it's a rodent. It's not a human model. It's a big problem. Two, it's a smooth muscle, not a skeletal muscle. But the best we have uh, across multiple molecules, so we'll just ride with this as as one example, and then we'll come to some others. Um, And then they would compare what happened to the seminal vesicle in this rat, Um, and that's how they would measure androgenicity. And then there's lots of different anabolic to androgenic ratios that come out of these Hirschberger assays. Some of them absolutely ridiculous, some of them closer to what we would expect in real world trade-off the androgenicity outcomes seem to be hilariously wrong and don't translate over to human models for trembolone as an example you know being far more androgenic than testosterone is certainly not the case in any of the human data on trembolone um it's shown to be a steroidal psalm in reality being far less androgenic than testosterone but anyway i've wavered off the point here um when you take the average because there's multiple Hirschberger assays for the same molecule as well which is a problem there's many if you even just type in testosterone in wikipedia and go down to the anabolic 
No, testosterone is not a good example. Prima Bolin is a good example because there's such variability. Or Winstrol is a good example because there's huge variability. If you look at the Hirschberg assays on these molecules, they just vary widely. But when it comes to anabolism, when you take the average across mean weight change of the Levatorani across these rodent models and you measure it in a, a kilogram change, like uh, kilograms of muscle burn, 100 gram, um, they all average out to be about the same per milligram so it appears protein accretion per milligram across all of these molecules is about the same what that means in real world discussion is 100 milligram of anavar 100 milligram of testosterone 100 milligram of nandrolone at the androgen receptor alone drives protein accretion drives anabolism all these things when it comes to muscle protein synthesis and mTOR and these anabolic pathways about the same and that tends to carry across to human data on these drugs also and real world experiences when accounting for changes in things like extracellular fluid so like aldosterone changes or um, nitrogen retention or you know these things that can affect your reliability of tracking actual dry skeletal protein weight so that was a big load of jargon. I'll put it simply. Per milligram, all anabolic steroids seem to grow muscle about the same when we're only talking about their action at the androgen receptor. So that claim um, that these drugs tend to add more muscle than others isn't supported in evidence in surrogate models or in human models. Um, is supported in poor anecdote, I would say, in my opinion isn't supported in what, in my opinion, would be objective and intelligent anecdote. Certainly not my anecdote either. They all tend to do about the same thing when you remove the external falsifying inputs like fluid retention um, is a big, big example, like estrogenic consequence. We had this discussion on physique collective the other day, like, why would testosterone seem to add muscle faster than prima bolin? It's like, well, you have to account for its actions at the estrogen receptor also, because of course, testosterone aromatizes into estradiol. Prima bolin doesn't. Estradiol is very anabolic in and of itself. Um, so this has been a, a long way to answer this question. So what that would draw me around to would be, okay, well, if these all add muscle probably about the same rate when we're talking purely at the androgen receptor, then it's probably a good idea for me to pick ones that seem to be the least damaging to your health, um, that have lots of studies done on them. I often give this example, right? So let's say you've got primobolin or dihydrobaldenone to choose from. Um, and, you know, there's no real good human data on DHB at all. And then you say, well, this one probably adds muscle more. So I'll use that. And then let's reference the, the COVID vaccine, right? When they rolled out the COVID vaccine and they said, listen, this hasn't been approved for human use. We've never tested this in humans. I don't think the majority of people would use it if you said this has never been trialed in humans. But when it comes to anabolics, people are like, I don't give a fuck, man. I'll take anything. <laughs> when you know in my opinion that this doesn't stand so knowing that things have muscle at about the same rate as one another approved for human use is a great tenant as much high quality data as possible is a good tenant and drugs that have been trialed at the highest dosage you can find comparatively to others is a good idea so look at something like primobolin trialed all the way up to 1.2 grams per week in women good predictable outcomes that doesn't automatically make it safer but the findings of the study do in terms of their androgenicity expressed mass run up to 300 milligrams great equipoise nothing no data dhb nothing so for me it's like well if they're all adding muscle at the same rate based on these studies and based on good high quality anecdote and i've got studies on humans and it's been trialed at high dosages and it seems to be pretty benign i'm gonna choose that one so yeah. this is how we come around to choosing my molecules wisely for the best outcomes. Yeah. Essentially you're kind of taking a gamble if you go with those other compounds where we can have, we have stuff that we know 
is uh, going to have less side effects and still drive muscle, um, you know, protein accretion and, and anabolism, as you said. Um, mm -hmm. it, I think that comes to the, also the, I guess in part, um, I don't know if you ever have to do this, but do you ever have to, um, cause you have, you, you train a lot of higher level competitors. Do you ever have mm -hmm. to have the conversation about like thinking about the future? Um, because someone who's highly competitive, like I know you have these cost benefit uh, conversations with people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, is it, is it ever a difficult uh, thing to kind of get people to, to, um, you know, think about, you know, 10 years down the line also, I mean, obviously you can, you can even just talk about their career, right. Having a long career being successful. And then after that, is that uh, ever a conversation that comes about? Um, most definitely. So, you know, people that are on the edge of a pro guard or my clients that compete at the pro level, we we automatically, unfortunately are working with what I would consider high risk models. Maybe it's not what other people would consider high risk model. Um, maybe it is. Um, there's absolutely a discussion about that. We can do this in the most risk reduction format possible, but you can't escape that this is driving some deleterious costs that will likely take time off of your life, or at least open you up to cardiovascular disease risk quite substantially. Um, let's be realistic. I, I want my client to show me that they objectively understand the risk before we are happy to make the decision you know and they're not just choosing to be blind to it unfortunately i think a lot of the ethical and this is a, a very deep discussion to be had in the world a lot of the ethical implications fall back on the coach because i can promise you that literally none of my professional competitors give a fuck about anything apart from winning the show so as much as I can try to get them to understand the risks and care, they're not going to. I find my masters, I've got uh, two really good masters competitors, high level, a male and a female. And they are both very aware of the implications and are looking to how quickly they can get out. And we have these goals set. It's like, right, once we've done that, and I want to get that in the next year, and if I don't, then I don't care, I'm out anyway, you know? And we're, we're very careful. The, the younger guys, the new pro guys that I coach, and they don't care. So it mostly falls back on me of thinking, okay, here's the long-term goals. Let's have those set. If we don't achieve those by this time, we're out. If we do achieve those by this time, here's the next step, and, and then we're out. And putting that down as that is what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to get there, and we're not going to breach this. If you can't do it without breaching this, then you're out anyway. I think that's a coach's approach that, should be taken nice so you're setting these these boundaries at least of like hey look it's just not even worth the risk that you're willing to take whatever risk but i'm saying that it's not worth the risk if you can't accomplish these things with this amount of of uh you know drug load or, or whatever it may be right you're setting this no. kind of like yeah that that makes but a ton it, of sense at the same time I, I argue with myself about it you know and i'll think well, actually, who am I to be some kind of ethical dominant figure on this yeah. individual? It, it, look, if somebody has no chance of even winning a regional show and they say, well, I want to run three grams of gear indefinitely anyway, then who am I to have any autonomy on their decision? It's a very difficult philosophical discussion to have, I think. Um, but yeah, within my own clients, I would try to be very objective about risk because most of my clients, look, they're already the genetically anyway. You know, they've gotten to that point because they are genetically elite and they are competing with people that are also genetically elite, uh, elite and respond to these PEDs very well also. So it's to some degree a narrower playing field that we're working within anyway. Yeah. Uh, which does narrow that down a little bit yeah yeah you just get i mean you just tend to get this the selection bias of like this type of competitor already at a certain level who probably is a good response already kind of thing so it's not as much but but i think it's even just responsible of you to have that conversation just you know there are coaches out there unfortunately who don't even have that conversation with their clients right they don't they don't inform them of the risk and it's tough because i always say like as a bodybuilder or any consumer of any uh, industry, especially if you don't, if you're not thoroughly educated, is you need to be an informed consumer as much as you can, and that's difficult sometimes. Like, say I try to do something in finance, it's difficult because you still need to have a prerequisite amount of knowledge to understand that you're not getting like the wool pulled over your eyes or something like that. 
Um, and, and so I think I, I see it as I have a duty as a coach to inform my clients as best as I can, at least, um, yeah. because a lot of the time they're coming to me because they've had bad experiences with other coaches and like, Hey, you know, uh, let's, let's make sure you're aware of all of the risks, all the trade-offs. You even know what's going on, you know, like, like sometimes they don't even know. They're just like, just give me the stack and I'll do the thing. I think just informing them as best you can is, is, is a responsible thing to do as a coach. I, I don't know. That's how I, feel. I think the further step to this also the coaches need to be aware of, and that is how broad and deep biological inter-individuality really is. So not having set frameworks with PED use that determine this kind of ethical boundary that we would set. So for example, 1.5 gram for one man is going to be an extreme amount of protein accretion is going to be fantastic. There's going to be a lot of deleterious health consequences that come with it. Also, maybe their LDL gets absolutely slammed. We get their echocardiogram done, and there's some serious ventricular hypertrophy that's occurred there. Um, and in another individual, three grams is, you know, it might get them a bit of progress and nothing happened to their blood work. It, it really is that broad. And we talked about the basin studies. You know, people will often quote the sort of statistical averages but if anybody's ever read the full paper and looked at the plot graph you know there, there's the the variability in lean body mass gain is extreme there was one guy in the 600 milligram group that his weight didn't change there was one guy i think that it was like 33 pounds or something crazy so <laughs> you know it's, it's huge there's a great lecture by dr scott stevenson i don't know if it's available online but it's called why you don't look like a pro and I remember, oh, it's got to be going back a decade now, the first time I saw that, and my mind was blown by that. And now I've seen it in practice. It was unbelievable. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've got this young lad that I coach called Leon. I don't know if you've seen him on my... Um, I've, I've seen Leon. On my Instagram. Right. So you, you might not know his story. So he came to me two years ago and basically said, I want to get into bodybuilding. So, like, I've joined the gym and I've bought my first cycle. I was thinking, what? This guy, like... He just like, he said, fuck it. I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do it properly. I remember thinking, because he looked like, I don't know if you've seen this version two years ago. He's, uh -huh. he's kind of, he, he looked like a, a skinny average guy. But I remember thinking, God, i got to help this poor guy. This is crazy. I was already full with clients at the time. And he was one of them guys that was badgering me about coaching. I really want to get on board. I really want to get on board. In the end, I said, for fuck's sake, man. All right. Um, and it was like 12 weeks time, he made about three years worth of program for most people on like 300 milligrams of gear. And I said, fuck, dude, you've got this. And here we are literally two years later, and he's national level competitor, international level competitor. We're flying out to Texas next month to compete on, you know, the international stage. He's been doing this shit for two years. Yeah. <laughs> his first prep, his first prep was like six months into him in training. His weight didn't even change from the start of the prep to the end of the prep, and he won everything he entered. So, you, you know, he didn't even lose weight on prep. He just got peeled in the same way. You know, so yeah. you get these people to him, and he can look at a bottle of testosterone and gain 30 pounds. To the next person, you know, it, it, it might not do anything ever. So that's where that ethical discussion becomes a little bit more clouded and difficult to assess. The only way really to assess that is to be very diligent in your data tracking. What does X milligram do to these health metrics over a period of time and be very good at luckily we've got some um services available to us these days that do that logging for you like there's a company in the uk called the blood lab that i've worked with quite a lot to get availability of echocardiograms and cystatin c metrics for example um and they have a portal that literally graphs your blood work for you over time oh, and awesome. you can have notes on there like i was on this i was on this i was on this when you collect that data, it becomes much easier to assess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I try to I try my best to do that with spreadsheets now, but it's a little more convoluted. Like having those charts and stuff is so awesome. As it's far difficult as to keep it Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's really cool. Um, what was I going to say? Well, uh, yeah, on the thing with with Leon, it's it's um something that I was skeptical before I had I had seen it, and I think being a coach and and just being you know uh, communicating with more people, seeing more people. Um, meeting a few IFBB pros, I, I started to, it, it started to really open my eyes into how that is. Like I was training mm -hmm. with an IFBB pro not that long ago. And this guy, like we were doing biceps and I was just like looking at his arm and he just has like striated biceps. And, uh, we're talking after, and he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm off everything. I've been off everything since the Olympia. I'm like, 
okay, like there's definitely yeah. a difference here in genetic response. Like this guy is uh, like 10% or leaner, striations everywhere, and he's not taking a single thing. Like, okay, like there's definitely a difference between me and him. And there's definitely a difference between a lot of people. And then you see also the people who you just throw volume at, you throw drugs at, and they're just nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you see that for yourself, you're like, okay, so there is a really big difference here, right? And 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 you probably get more of this selection bias at the higher level competitive uh, bodybuilding, mm -hmm. where they're they're drawn to it as a result of the fact that they responded so well. I mean, you hear so many of these guys where like they were just training at the gym, and someone's like, "You should compete," and then like you know, it's Ronnie Coleman or like Jay Cutler. It's like they end up being these really high level bodybuilders. It's like. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't remember anybody coming up to me and being like, you should be a bodybuilder, right? It was all like self-imposed. So um, that's something I always think about. No, you, you're entirely right about the selection bias. I've been quite lucky that I've been able to keep my head screwed on with this quite well because I am one of the shitty genetic people. Um, but I, I, I'm so grateful for that because without that, I wouldn't have had such a obsession with learning everything I possibly could about hypertrophy, and it's not something that would ever sort of bother me. But at least comparing my kind of response to inputs to to others, it becomes extremely clear what way things go there. And it's something for people to be, you know, if you want to do this with the goal of turning pro or something like that, like no matter what you do, it might never happen. Be realistic about that. It might not be worth taking ten years off your life for something that, no matter what you do, will never happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and being honest with yourself like i mean i i have people come to me and they're like i want to be mr olympia and i'm like you know how many people <laughs> have done that and like you know to like 14 50 people in, in all of history like uh you know what's 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 the probability and then and then what's the what's when will you say hey this is not worth it you know what i mean like you could do it as a passion project but like you mentioned is it worth taking 10 years off your life if you know uh it's something that you know you do recreationally or you never will achieve that thing uh, but it, it, again, it, you know, obviously to each their own, you can't really tell somebody that they can't do something. It's just more of a conversation to be had, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I did want to transition to, so we're, we were talking about Prima Bowling earlier and mm -hmm. um, this, this approach you've made more popular uh, and, and it's becoming more popular is the, what's referred to as polypharmacy. And uh, could you just explain what that is and and how we apply it to become better bodybuilders? So firstly, let me not take credit for that. I, I do agree that I think I popularized that as a kind of more well-known coach, but the first person that I ever saw using a polyphony model of drug use was Austin This was about nine, nine years ago or so. Austin's a great friend of mine. We've done a podcast together for years and years. We've done oh, yeah. Um, he's an incredible bodybuilder. I think he got that from Jason Theobald, and I think and other people I've seen have done great work with that. Victor Black's an example. He's big proponent of this. Um, John Meadows used a similar approach to this. I remember he was the first person I saw talking about metformin use. So essentially, what we're talking about. Here, I just want to get that out of the way because I've got yeah, down social media. Yeah. Get me for trust me. <laughs> if you if you don't credit. <laughs> instantly you're gonna get attacked uh, after this immediate um but anyway i'd like to think i've got my own way of doing things from learned right. experiences everybody of many does. many good mentors um right we got that out of the way let's go <laughs> um my preferred approach would be to list every single metabolic pathway of drug use that we have available to us that could drive up anabolism um drive up lipolysis or drive down anti-lipogenesis so to put that in layman's term increase your ability to gain muscle or drive muscle growth in and of itself increase your ability to lose body fat and decrease your potential to gain body fat so we would look at every drug category across all of the metabolic pathways available to us and i believe uh, the first person i saw talking about this Relative toxicity of drug use was Professor Scott Howells, who's another great name that I'd recommend everybody check out. He's like the world's leading androgen researcher. But um, essentially, toxicity seems to be most heavily driven when you drive a single pathway excessively. So my preferred approach would be to just slightly turn the dials across multiple metabolic pathways here. So let me give a really easy example to guys. 
back in the day, you would have heard things like, you need to earn the right to use growth hormone and insulin. You shouldn't use growth hormone and insulin until you're over one gram of gear. Or if you're not a pro, don't use insulin. It's too dangerous. Or some other nonsense like this. Realistically, you'd be in a much more favorable position, not only progress-wise, but also health and longevity-wise, to use growth hormone and insulin in moderate dosages to be able to progress at the same rate with less total net androgen exposure as compared to an excessive amount of androgens. So I'm going to pull numbers out of my ass. I'm not sure how this would qualitatively relate to total net anabolism, but I would much rather see somebody running, let's say, 500 milligrams of androgens with three units of growth hormone and 20 units of insulin than I would just a gram of androgens in and of themselves. And then we would further layer this pathway up with, okay, an angiotensin receptor blocker could be in there. Something for oxidative stress and insulin sensitivity like metformin could be in there. A catalyst like injectable L-carnitine could be in there. We've got multiple analogs of insulin. We could use a basal insulin. We could use a rapid insulin. And we could even break metabolic pathways into androgen receptor action, estrogen receptor action, glucocorticoid receptor action. We've got the thyroidal axes that we can modulate. We've got the GHIGF axes that we can modulate. So if you're a professional bodybuilder and you're having to work with these high-risk models, it's a very good idea to use all of these pathways available to you for you to be able to limit the total net exposure of a single pathway. Right. And, and why do you think those that, that it might be deleterious to say run you know, a thousand milligrams, uh, like, like, I guess this is relatively speaking, right. But like, why would it be a little bit more risky to, uh, or, or less safe to push your androgens up and not worry about any of this other stuff going on? So if I was going to draw a deleterious health consequence on a bar graph, an X, Y axis against androgen exposure, you would see as, so there would be high risk in the sort of hypogonadal region, very low hormone. And then it would level off to no risk in the sort of mid to upper range of the physiological range. And then it would increase like this. The increase is exponential per every milligram added. The risk gets exponentially higher. So it, it, it's going to be more than double the risk at 1,000 milligrams than at 500. So we want to limit how far we push anything super physiological as much as possible. And, and by using these different pathways, we can use, I mean, even like at a basal approach, we start generally with like the minimum effective dosage or what was deployed in a clinical setting as our first course of action. And then, like I've heard you say before, titrate for effect. So we're starting yes. at the minimum across the board, which is like low risk, right? And then titrate for effect. But instead of, yeah, like pushing one up, you know, you're, you're affecting multiple systems uh, instead of one and stressing out multiple systems instead of just one, um, which. Exactly. Yeah. So if we're trying to get to a certain amount of like total net anabolism, like if we just use numbers again, this is a fucking example that might not carry over into reality at all, but it should make sense sort of hypothetically. We were trying to get to five anabolism and we could get five anabolisms from androgens, or we could get two from androgens, one from growth hormone, one from insulin, one from L-carnitine, where we've not had to push all of these into their same degree of relative superphysiological level as compared to having to do that for a single metabolic pathway. So the stress across all systems net is less, but the anabolism net is the same. Yeah. And and one thing that I think is really cool is that some of these things like, like a metformin, like an insulin, like a telmosartan, they also uh, counteract some of the negative effects of some of the mm -hmm. other compounds, right? Like you have right. growth hormone that creates insulin resistance, but then you have insulin, which helps to attenuate that, but also has anabolic effects. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's, it's a really cool thing when you start putting these things together, right? Yeah, a great point to mention for any PED users, I think the prophylactic practice is extremely important with what we know now. When we look at some of the things that are, are going to... Um, cause the greatest degree of deleterious health costs like oxidative stress huge issue with androgen use well there's a very potent uh attenuator of oxidative stress in metformin which also brings about great insulin sensitivity benefits it reduces hepatic glucose output so you know you, you're potentially improving nutrient partition in there you know you could argue for increasing fatty acid mobilization so you know you you, you are actually improving your bodybuilding outcomes but also your health and longevity of practice Telmosartan, the one you mentioned there, you know, the real big hitter for us, angiotensin elevation is 
of primary concern to PED users. Pretty much everything we do elevates angiotensin II expression, which is a big problem. So we can use something like telmosartan that is an angiotensin receptor blocker, which also has some nice effects for us. It drops aldosterone. Nobody likes carrying a load of additional extracellular fluid that will moderate blood pressure well. It's also a PPAR agonist. So you're going to get some of the metabolic benefits of PPAR agonism, not as much as cardarine, you know, albeit that's going to absolutely sledgehammer your PPAR, but it, it wouldn't fit within a model that I'd be comfortable with due to the right. carcinogenesis concerns. Um, but hey, there's some benefit there. But, you know, these might be mild benefits, but when you're stacking eight mild benefits alongside each other, you get to something pretty robust. Yeah, yeah, some synergy between some of them too. Synergy um, is, you're making better points than me, synergistic relationships and permissive relationships are one of the beautiful things with these kind of stack designs. Because not only are you just spreading the stress load, but you're also creating great synergy. You look at something like growth hormone and anabolics where um, growth hormone increases mRNA expression of IGF-1 in the muscle cell. Sorry, anabolics, got that the wrong way around. Androgens increase mRNA expression of IGF-1 in the muscle cell, and we're creating a big kick of systemic IGF-1 empathically from growth hormone. Hey, you got this almost one plus one equals three effect. So now for every milligram of androgen used, you're getting more total net anabolism. Hence, the, the spread of the stress load there for the same net anabolism you're increasing. So you don't have to increase an anabolics as much for the same net protein accretion benefit. That's a really, really cool thing. And um, uh, one thing I wanted to touch on while we're on this topic, how does that model work within female PED use? Um, mm -hmm. Because I think one thing that's really interesting is like people, like you're talking to anybody about like first exposure female, they're always like Anivar. And, yes. and, and I've learned that like, that's not the best case, especially after learning these models. Uh, and, and a lot of the time, that's the last uh, pathway that a lot of, the, of the, some of these, um, you know, educators tend and, and end up using because they understand the, the you know, deleterious effects and whatnot. But I won't get into it. I'll let you explain, like, what how would we maybe approach uh, stack design for a female? For sure. So polypharmacy, like we've been through, still should be a tenant of practice in females. Absolutely. The approved human use drugs practice, that should absolutely be a tenant of use in females the issue lies in that females are very androgen sensitive you know women children the elderly androgen sensitive testosterone in a man it's no problem virilization what virilization you're you're already a man you know masculinization is not a concern for us um for females is literally why we've seen some of the great developments in these molecules over the last century that we have seen the, the reduction of the androgenic consequence of testosterone that eventually leads to the movement from androgens into anabolic androgenic steroids, reduced androgenicity, maintained anabolism, hence Mastron and Anabar and Primobol. And this is essentially what pharmaceutical companies have all come up with across the span of multiple different companies to answer this question of what do we do when it comes to androgen therapy? Anyway, the problem that we have lies within the fact that no drug developer, pharmaceutical company, chemist, whatever you want to call it, has been able to yet remove the entirety of androgenic consequence from any molecule. We're not there yet, unfortunately. And as we said earlier, hypertrophy isn't an acute process. It happens over an extended long period of time. And if a woman uses an anabolic androgenic steroid over a long period of time, they will suffer virilization, duration of use, is in fact far more important than dosing, a dosage, single dosing structures when it comes to virilization consequence. So that means we have to limit androgen exposure in women as much as possible. Um, and luckily we have like transgender research now has a lot of funding gone into it. And we can see what happens when females are exposed to androgens. They go through uh, essentially hormonally mediated transition of genders, gender reassignment. It's a form of gender reassignment surgery. Um, so if you want to maintain your femininity, and not every female does, and that's fair enough. I've worked with women that compete in bodybuilding and physique that don't give a shit. That makes it easier. Um, when it comes to classes like bikini, or if you compete in something like Diva in a fitness fashion federation like WBFF or something like that, or lower-level figure competitors. Like, for example, if you look at the... 
One of my clients just won the Miss Another England athletic figure. She's extremely muscled, Emma Thackeray. She's amazing. She's also 47, got three kids. Amazing athlete, extremely feminine. So she's a walking example of this kind of thing. Uh, Androgen exposure has been basically net nothing over her career. And you can tell. Um, So that's almost a walking example, like we mentioned earlier, of these models in practice. So what that comes down to is look at every other metabolic pathway. Use every other synergistic relationship between drugs before you use androgens and really only use them in the lowest dose for the shortest duration possible that you require. And there are kind of rough frameworks that you can place on here. Like I would not like to see my female athletes use androgens for longer than between eight to 12 at the maximum weeks per year. And I would not do that in one stint. That would be two or three. So it would potentially be the final mesocycle of the off season, maybe when we really need to break through some kind of growth plateau and the final four weeks of a prep simply for their cosmetic benefit. If we're modulating hormone ratios around, we're talking about higher androgen, lower estrogen maybe higher progestin ratios to control fluid balance that's when we could utilize them but the dosages required for a prep scenario are extremely low so somewhere between 35 milligram to maybe 70 milligram a week at the most uh is where i would go which you know as somebody that's spoken to a lot of female competitors that's very low you know um i can people will know this anyway so it's probably no secret uh, a lot of these sort of Olympia bikini coaches, it's a 200 milligram per week of Primo for 12 weeks kind of ordeal, um, which is problematic, um, very problematic over multiple examples of um, exposure. When you follow a model that has what's a basal protocol where we could have sort of a hormone replacement therapy testosterone in there, potentially this, putting these women in the, the kind of end of the physiological range that maybe only the top 1% of athletes in the world would have, but doesn't drive virilization, that's great. And we can stack on some growth hormone and some insulin and some injectable L-carnitine and maybe put in their T3, T4 in a position where they're optimal and uh, metformin, like we mentioned, telmosatan, you know, stack all these on top of each other. Uh, without anabolics, people say, well, does that really do anything? Women, have, just like they're androgen sensitive, they're very anabolically sensitive also it doesn't take a lot for them to make substantial progress. So, you know, following a model that essentially only uses androgens when needed, but utilising these other metabolic pathways almost continuously, the way that I would prefer, again, this is going to raise some eyebrows, but the way that I would prefer females to use drugs would be to have a model where we use all of these drugs all of the time, but in dosages that do not result in any kind of negative feedback and stress inducing format. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. A lot a lot of um, females tend to be afraid of testosterone, um, but mm. like I try to explain it to to them like it's, you know, it, it's, a ba- it's a base amount, right? It's not going to cause, it's, it's essentially... Like you mentioned, it's it's maybe uh, slightly higher than a replacement, not enough to really drive a, a noticeable amount of viralization um, mm-hmm. or side effects or anything like that. And it's a lot safer. It's a bioidentical hormone. It aromatizes mm-hmm. an estrogen uh, as opposed to you can't go on replacement Anavar. That's not a thing, right? Uh, right. And, and then the, the actual deleterious effects of that over a long period of time are uh, much greater, you know, so. And much of these, much of these basal inputs will also control some of the negatives of competing without them. Like, for example, you're in an extended deficit. You see that deficit mediated attenuation of sex steroid hormones. So, you know, testosterone is in the toilet. Thyroid hormones are in the toilet. You feel terrible. Your performance is terrible. Hey, what, what? And we know from multiple data pieces that being hypogonadal drives increases in all kinds of disease risks. Why not? Even even if you're not going to use any other drugs, there's a great discussion to be had of just replacement for people that compete frequently, especially women, bikini athletes are the biggest culprits of this. I mean, no offense, my wife is one, I coach a lot of them, have them for years. The pro car chasing, we're doing 14 shows this season or something across nine different countries. It's like, holy shit. Like you, your HPO axis is, is not going to yeah. function well, uh, maybe ever again. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's the scary thing about this. And I think that's especially where we need more of this approach is on the female side of things. Because like I mentioned before, the the informed consumer thing is is, is tough. And I don't like to ever put 
blame on an athlete at all. Some of these coaches are, are just unfortunately just irresponsible with the way they advise some of their female athletes. And uh, I think that an approach like this needs, needs to be, uh, and, 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 and there is a need for it to become more popularized because of the fact that like the damage, like you've heard, we've all heard those stories about females who did a show and were just like, just, they suffer like hair loss, depression after their coach abandons them. Uh, they are, you know, experienced viralization. It wasn't something that they were really made aware of that would occur. I mean, there's just so many things that like, uh, need to be, it, 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 there's a lot more to be, to be managed, especially on the female side of things. It's a little bit more complex. And I think that it's really important that, uh, this approach becomes a little more mainstream. In my experience of coaching females and having many consults with many competitors over the year, men seem to be a little bit more um, interested in information seeking for their PED behaviors, whereas women, it's usually my coach told me to and I just trusted him, um, which isn't a, a, a sort of knock on women at all. I mean, that's a great, you know, I wish all my clients were like that. You know, hey. Yeah, you, you, want, you want to trust your coach. Exactly. And it, it's the fault of the educator. Hands down, it's the fault yeah, of the educator or the, or the advisor here. Um, and I can't, I cannot tell you how many consultations I've had with women where I've had to tell them there's really nothing that we can do. They have voice issues. Oh, there's yeah. no, there's nothing you can do. There's some surgery, but, you know, there's not great outcomes. You know, they can potentially be even worse outcomes on the other side. And, you know, the, the terminal hair growth is, is an issue. So um, you know, it literally changes the bone structure, you know. Right. Who's who, who, if you ever who's ever been to a show and looked at masters female competitors and seen what they look like? You know, yeah. That's that's what you're going to look like if you keep going down this road. You know you're okay with that because you can't turn back. Uh, it's a serious problem. But I'm glad I'm glad to see the industry's moving quite heavily. Absolutely, now absolutely. this way. Yeah, most definitely. And then that's why I do podcasts like this, and and I want to contribute to the conversation. And I think that's why your um, your service that you provide is so so important so that's uh i guess a great transition um to, to getting you off of here but but um you know you do great work and and i uh i'm really excited to be a part of physique collective and always share that with other people so so thank you for that thank you all awesome. right i'll leave this form of a plug then so yeah absolutely go ahead <laughs> since physique collective has been bigged up so much physiquecollective.com we have tons of videos basically it's a subscription site it's also an app uh Apple Store, Android, whatnot. It's only £6.99 a month, which is about the same in, in US currency. Um, we have open Q&A 24-7 on there. We've got the Ask Joe Anything thread, thousands of responses in there. You can put any question you have for me, and I'm right on it. It's my obsession. As soon as it pings up on my phone, I'm on there. Um, a lot of my clients log on there, so if you want to see what kind of pro-level competitors across multiple different classes, categories federations want to see what they're doing training drug wise nutrition wise check it out ask some questions um we have lives every single week also q a lives lives on topics and um yeah so guys please check it out if you want to check me out on instagram it's at joe underscore physique collective happy to answer any questions on there also and check out my content and i hope that you guys enjoyed this one yes sir i'll uh, i'll make sure to put all those links below I think I just ended up buying a year because it was like, uh, what? How much is it in pounds? It's, it's seventy five quid. That so yeah, just buy the year. Yeah, honestly, that's what I did. Um, I was thinking about uh, this since it's such a. Uh, I don't know how you would feel about this. Um, since it's such a, uh, uh, you know, a, a safer place to talk about PEDs and stuff like that. Would would it be all right if I uh, kept an off season log? Like I don't know if it's uh, please, anything. please, please, please. That's 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 exactly what I want. People did you, you might have noticed this with physique collective. So my gripe with um not gonna name any names, because some of them are ran by my friends, um, other <laughs> subscription sites is quite a hostile environment in the forum places. And you know, with some of the responses, I hate that. And you know, some of the compliments that we've got at shows this year and last year over and over again was how much of a family feel, how friendly physique collective is. And that's what I really want it to be. You know, I want anybody to be welcome. We don't have any negativity on there. No shade throwing, no nothing. It's a positive, helpful community. And I want as many people to log on there as possible. And we could just push that community vibe in there, get good advice from intelligent people and all learn together, really. So 
bro. I would absolutely love that if you could do that. Sweet. I'll, uh, I'll start off this weekend. It's, I coach myself. So, I mean, I, I know there's always something that I can do better as a part of that. And, and then also just the accountability factor, just checking in with myself and, and everybody else. So I will do that. Awesome. I appreciate that. Sweet. Super stoked to get that started then. All right, Joe, I'll let you get out of here. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, bro. Thank you very much. I'll come back sometime. Sweet. <laughs>